All right, let's continue with Mrs. Dalloway. Uh, in one of the uh, typically uh, clever transitions that Wolf works into the the book, uh, we ended with hearing the 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 chimes of the bells and it relating to the the fact that uh, uh, Lucretia has realized that uh, uh, Dr. Bradshaw is not a nice man, that she doesn't like him. And it, we go from that to having Hugh Whitbread hearing the bells and going to his lunch appointment. Um, now, Hugh Whitbread is very much like Bradshaw, a um, a representative of the um, the establishment. He he's the man. Uh, we we see that he, you know the way he's described on page uh, uh, twenty two thirteen. It says that he did not go deeply. He brushed surfaces. Uh, well, you know, Mrs. Dalloway is a novel very much about going into the depths and seeing the insides of things. And so a character like Hugh Whitbread, who just brushes the surface, is is in some ways antithetical to the uh, to the novel. In the same way that uh, uh, Sir William Bradshaw is antithetical in the way of his lack of compassion. Uh, the 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 ethos of Mrs. Dalloway is very much about going into the depths of things and being compassionate. And so these two, re- you know, representatives of the establishment are the opposite of that. Um, Hugh Whitbread is going to his lunch with Lady Bruton, and so the next section of the the novel will uh, talk about that. Now, if you remember uh, earlier on in the book. Uh, Clarissa Dalloway got the note that her husband, Richard, would be dining, having having lunch with Lady Bruton, but she wasn't invited. So this has actually been kind of set up beforehand. And uh, Richard Dalloway is also eating uh, lunch along with uh, Lady Bruton and uh, Hugh Whitbread. And Lady Bruton herself is another uh, uh, example of the the upper class of the establishment and is, like so many of them in this book, criticized. Uh, look at the top of 2215. Uh, Lady Bruton had, a rep- had the reputation of being more interested in politics than people, of talking like a man, of having had a finger in some notorious intrigue of the 80s, which was now beginning to be mentioned in memoirs. Uh, so she's, you know... Um, She's more interested in politics than people. Uh, again, that's very different from from characters like Clarissa or Peter. They're very much interested in people, and the novel itself is interested in people. But these kinds of detached, aristocratic people are not interested. They're interested in politics. They're interested in causes and ideas, not in actual people. Uh, and we see throughout this, uh, the, the maid... Uh, uh, Mrs. Bruton's maid, Millie Brush, uh, is, is thinking how much she dislikes Hugh Whitbread, and she's kind of our our, our cue if we needed one of uh, of how kind of contemptuous he really is. Uh, she's a, a, a nice foil for him throughout this scene, and their their conversation also turns to uh, Peter Walsh. Uh, the bottom of twenty two fifteen. Uh, Lady Bruton is aware that he's back in town, and, and says. Uh, uh, it says, they all thought, uh, all three, Lady Bruton, Hugh Whitbread, and Richard Dalloway, remembered the same thing, how passionately Peter had been in love, been rejected, gone to India, come a cropper, made a mess of things. And Richard Dalloway had a very great liking for the dear old fellow, too. 
Now, that's interesting. Again, they, they, they know the story, but notice it's only Richard who really likes him, who has a great liking for him. The other two don't. They know all these things about him. Uh, and it's especially interesting that Richard likes him because he knows the story about Peter and, and uh, Clarissa, uh, but he still likes the guy. Um, and they say at the top of um, 2216, uh, Lady Bruton says, uh, uh, Peter Walsh has come back. Um, you know, he had, he had come back battered, unsuccessful to their secure shores, but to help him, they reflected, was impossible. There was some flaw in his character. So they can't really, he's, he's made, again, he's made a mess of things, but they can't really help him. There's something wrong with his character. So they're very judgmental uh, about that. You know, and Lady Bruton says, in trouble with some woman, um, which you know, I guess is true, but it ignores, you know, the, the depth of feeling that Peter has about it. But of course, Lady Bruton is not primarily there to, you know, to talk about people. She's interested in politics. Uh, particularly a project of an immigration project of uh, sending people off to Canada. Um, and uh, she and notice it says at the bottom of 2216, she had perhaps lost her sense of proportion. Now this is coming just a few pages after we've heard the uh, Sir William Bradshaw's uh, kind of, of, of hymn to the beauty of proportion, uh, of how important that is. Well, it, it seems like uh, Lady Bruton has also lost a sense of proportion. Uh, the immigration, this issue, uh, this object round which the essence of her soul is daily secreted becomes inevitably prismatic, lustrous, half looking glass, half precious stone, now carefully hidden in case people should see it, should sneer at it, now proudly displayed. Immigration had become, in short, largely Lady Bruton. Uh, so she's obsessed with this uh, this cause. Uh, and again, notice she's not obsessed with the people that this immigration program is supposed to help. She's obsessed with the issue itself. Uh, again, she likes politics more than people. But she has to, she wants to write a letter to the Times to put this issue out in the public and doesn't know how to do it very well. That's why Hugh Whitbread is there. He is uh, possessed, as no one could doubt it, the art of writing letters to the Times. So he's, and he has uh, he's produced his fountain pen and is going to write this for her. And notice that as he is revising her, her letter and making it suitable for the, the discourse of a, a letter to the Times, uh, Richard doesn't like it. He says, Richard thought uh, it was all stuffing and bunkum. Um, but uh, Lady Bruton is very impressed with it. Uh, Richard is the kind of the odd man out here. He is He's here with these establishment figures, but he's the one who actually likes Peter. He's the one who sees all of this, this uh, rhetoric that Hugh Whitbread is writing as stuff and bunkum. Uh, there's something much more appealing and human about Richard. And I think it's very... Uh, and Now, certainly, Richard is is a little bit, is certainly a more reserved figure than Clarissa or Peter. Uh, but by putting him in this company and putting him here with uh, Hugh, Hugh Whitbread and, and Lady Bruton, uh, it, it shows a kind of humanity to Richard that we might not have seen as clearly uh, if he'd been introduced with other characters. Now, look at the image near the bottom of 2218, when uh, when uh, Richard and uh, Hugh 
leave the lunch. We're in inside of Lady Bruton's head. And she says, And they went further and further from her, being attached to her by a thin thread, since they had lunched with her, which would stretch and stretch, get thinner and thinner as they walked across London, as if one's friends were attached to one's body after lunching with them by a thin thread, which, as she dozed there, became hazy with the sound of bells striking the hour, ringing to service as a single spider's thread is blotted with raindrops and burdened sags down. So she slept. And Richard Dalway and Hugh Whitbread hesitated at the corner of of Conduit Street at the very moment that Millicent Bruton, lying on the sofa, let the thread snap, snored. So... This is a, a this metaphor of the the spider's thread connecting her with these people, and it stretches thinner and thinner and then snaps. Uh, this idea of connections between people and how much people are connected. Now, for Lady Bruton, it's a very superficial thing. They had lunch together, so there's a connection. Um, but the the book as a whole uh, it talks about deeper connections among people and between people and how they are are broken or not broken. Uh, but that's an important image in the in the book and will come up uh, come up again soon on the very next page. In fact. Uh, Richard has gotten kind of, of, of following along with Hugh, who's buying a present, and he, he's thinking about uh, uh, getting Clarissa a present. Uh, for he never gave Clarissa presents, except a bracelet or two, or a bracelet two or three years ago, which had not been a success. She never wore it. It pained him to remember that she never wore it. And as a single spider's thread, after wavering here and there, attaches itself to the point of a leaf... So Richard's mind, recovering from its lethargy, set now on his wife, Clarissa. Uh, so here is that same image. Now, notice that with um, Lady Bruton, the, the thread kind of collapsed as she was falling asleep. And now um, Richard's mind is recovering from lethargy. It's kind of waking up. It's becoming more aware. And it, so it focuses on Clarissa. Uh, so he's thinking about, you know, what, what should he get her? What kind of present could he get for his wife? And he thinks that he's going to get her some flowers. Uh, and he talks about this feeling about her when they spoke of Peter Walsh at luncheon. And they never spoke of it, not for years had they spoken of it, which, he thought, grasping his uh, red and white roses together, a vast bunch in tissue paper, is the greatest mistake in the world. The time comes when it can't be said. One's too shy to say it. So they've they've never discussed Peter Walsh, uh, and the kind of the time has passed. It's become something that they you know they, they can't say it anymore. They're too too shy for that. And he decides he gets these beautiful you know white and red roses for her. And so we see him setting off with his great bunch held against his body to Westminster to say straight out in so many words whatever she might think of him, holding out his flowers, I love you. Why not? Really, he was a miracle, thinking of the war and thousands of poor chaps with all their lives before them, shoveled together, already half forgotten. He was a miracle. He was he, he, Here he was, walking across London to say to Clarissa, in so many words, 
that he loved her. Which one never does say, he thought, partly one's lazy, partly one's shy, and Clarissa, it was difficult to think of her, except in starts, at a luncheon, when he saw her quite distinctly, their whole, he saw quite distinctly their whole life. Um, so he's had this, this moment, this kind of, of, of insight, this uh, desire. He's going to say that he loves her, and he feels like it is a miracle. It's a miracle that he should have married Clarissa, a miracle. His life had been a miracle, he thought, hesitating to cross. Um, now, again, it's kind of ironic. He's thinking of this bold gesture, but he's very hesitant about crossing the street. Uh, and as we'll see, he, he's kind of hesitant about following through with his, his big plan here. And notice he keeps saying, in so many words, I'm going to tell her I love her in so many words. Because it is a thousand pities never to say what one feels, he thought. Uh, so he's he's getting this up, but it's always, you know, in so many words, he will tell her. And he's very caught up in in this moment. He, he, happiness is this, he thought. This is on 2121. And then we get uh, Big Ben chiming, which is another transition. We go from, uh, from uh, Richard to Clarissa inside hearing the same thing. Uh, it's three o'clock and in comes Richard. So they have this meeting. And here, you now we've known from his point of view, he's planning to give her these flowers and tell her he loves her. And look what happens at the top of 2222. Um, he was holding out flowers, roses, red and white roses, but he could not bring himself to say he loved her. Not in so many words. But how lovely, she said, taking the flowers. She understood. She understood without his speaking, his Clarissa. Uh, so there's this moment, uh, you know, this very touching little moment between them. Um, he, he's all planning to say that he loves her. He's not quite able to do that. There's this kind of reticence about him. But giving her the flowers, he knows that she understands that he loves her. And we, I think you get a real insight into their relationship. Um, remember, one of the things that Clarissa said she valued about being, uh, about marrying Richard is that he allowed her her privacy. Uh, and so there are all these kind of unspoken things between them. Uh, they're, they clearly do love each other, but they don't say it. Uh, they don't. They don't make it overt. They don't kind of intrude into each other's lives to say it. Uh, they say it with with gestures and with things that are understood. And look there in the middle of the page. But he could not tell her he loved her. He held her hand. Happiness is this. He thought. Now, so many characters in uh, Mrs. Dalloway have these moments and reflect on moments of happiness. For Richard, his happiness is holding his wife's hand. Uh, it's very it's very sweet. Uh, and Richard is not an imaginative character or as deep a character as, as Peter or Clarissa or Septimus, uh, but I, th- I think he's obviously a, a, a deeper character and a more warm and genuine character than the, the, the people he was having lunch with and the Hugh Whitbreads of the world. Uh, so we we see here the again the compatibility between uh, Mister and Missus Dalloway, and as we move into again to uh, 
Clarissa Dalloway's head, she begins thinking about her parties and the way that they are they're criticized by some people. Some people think that they're not that important, uh, but for her they are. She says for her, the bottom of 22, 23, they're an offering. Uh, they're uh, her. They're very important for her, uh, and she points out the top of twenty two, twenty four. She could not imagine Peter or Richard taking the trouble to give a party for no reason whatever. But to go deeper beneath what people said, and these judgments, how superficial, how fragmentary they are, in her own mind now, what did it mean to her? This thing she called life. Says, and she felt quite continuously a sense of their existence, of all these people she's thinking of, and she felt, what a waste, and she felt, what a pity, and she felt, if only they could be brought together, so she did it, and it was an offering to combine, to create, but to whom? So for her, there's a there's a higher meaning in these parties. They're bringing, literally bringing people together. Uh, again, allowing these moments of connection and communication that are so important in Mrs. Dalloway. And as we've seen before, all of this is leading to, to for Clarissa has these larger thoughts about the meaning of things. We've seen, you know, Richard doesn't really think that way, but Clarissa does. And she says, all the same, that one day should follow another Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, that one should wake up in the in the morning, see the sky, walk the park, meet Hugh Whitbread, then suddenly in came Peter, then these roses. It was enough. After that, how unbelievable death was, that it must end, and no one in the whole world would know how she had loved it, how she had loved it all, how every instant... The door opened. Elizabeth comes in. So another interruption. But there's this moment where she's, th- you know, thinking when you are engaged in the in the moments of life and these simple things. These aren't grand, important things. Again, how her day has gone: meeting Hugh Whitbread, walking in the park, seeing Peter, getting roses from her husband. And it says that that's enough. It makes death unbelievable. Uh, how could how could you die when you're so kind of immersed in the in the joy of being alive? But again, as so often, these moments are interrupted, and this one is interrupted because Elizabeth is going uh, going out with her her tutor and friend, uh, Miss Kilman. Now, Miss Kilman is another very. In, she's only briefly in the in the book, but I think she's a very important character in terms of the contrasts that she sets up. Um, she's very, very different from uh, Clarissa Dalway. In fact, the two of them seem to really dislike each other. Uh, look at the bottom of 2224. This is um, Miss Kilman thinking about uh, Clarissa, about Mrs. Dalloway, that she had been merely condescending. She came from the most worthless of all classes, the rich, with a smattering of culture. They had expensive things everywhere, pictures, carpets, lots of servants, she considered that she had a perfect right to anything that the Dalways did for her. She had been cheated. Yes, the, wor- the word was no exaggeration, for surely a girl has a right to some kind of happiness. So we instantly get this kind of, of envious, uh, uh, self-pitying feelings in Miss Kilman. 
Uh, she's been cheated. She deserves whatever she gets. These people are rich, and I'm not, and I'm not, and I deserve what they have. And she feels both very put upon, very victimized, and very self-righteous. And part of her self-righteousness is her uh, her her religion. Uh, she says that our Lord had come to her, uh, and she had seen the light two years and three months ago. So she's literally marking the day. Uh, and as for how she feels about the, the Dalways, she pitied and despised them from the bottom of her heart. Uh, well, that... So just a minute ago, it says that she had this great Christian conversion, and now she's being pity, pitying and despising of people. So maybe it wasn't as true a religious conversion as she might think. And look at the bottom of 2225 as she's thinking about Mrs. Dalloway. Fool, simpleton, you who have known neither sorrow nor pleasure, who have trifled your life away. Um, now, you know, there's again because we have been inside of Clarissa Dalway's mind, uh, we know how unfair that is. Certainly, this is a woman who does understand both sorrow and pleasure. Um, if there's a charge that she is trifling her life away, she's just had this inner monologue talking about how the things that people think are really trivial, like her throwing parties, actually have a deep significance for her. But Miss Kilman has no sympathy for any of that. Um, and uh, Mrs. Dalloway has trouble kind of dealing with her. Uh, but look at, it's actually, as she realizes, it's more the idea of her than the actual person. Look at the uh, top of 2226. Uh, odd it was, as Miss Kilman stood there, and stand she did, with the power and tacitinity of some prehistoric monster armored for primeval, primeval warfare, how, second by second, the idea of her diminished, how hatred, which was for ideas, not people, crumbled, how she lost her malignity, her size, became, second by second, merely Miss Kilman in a Macintosh, whom heaven knows Clarissa would have liked to help. At this dwindling of the monster, Clarissa laughed, saying goodbye. She laughed. Uh, so Clarissa has this moment where, again, the idea of her and her, her very strongly held principles and the idea that she's taking her daughter away from her, all of that is very distressing to her. But the actual person is somebody who's not a monster, is somebody who she'd like to help. And she laughs at that. Oh, well, thank goodness. Um, she's relieved. Um, now, uh, Miss Kilman has no, no comparable uh, uh, understanding or sympathy for Clarissa Dalway. She just dislikes her. Uh, and again, this, this, this very kind of seething, self-righteous, self-pitying uh, mentality is an interesting contrast to the other characters in the novel. Now, when Miss Kilman and Elizabeth leave, uh, Clarissa reflects on this and says, love and religion, thought Clarissa, going back into the drawing room, tingling all over. How detestable, how detestable they are. For now, the body of Miss Kilman was not before her. It overwhelmed her. The idea. The crudest thing in the world, she thought, seeing them clumsy, hot, domineering, 
hypocritical, eavesdropping, jealous, infinitely cruel and unscrupulous, dressed in a Macintosh coat on the landing, love and religion. Had she ever tried to convert anyone herself? Did she not uh, wish everyone, everybody merely to be themselves? So she's saying, you know, here's, you know, this woman is very evangelical. She wants to convert her. That's not how Clarissa feels. Uh, and so the, these these passions, these ideas of love and religion uh, can make people be very, uh, very cruel. Um, and then at the at this moment, she sees in the through the window, uh, through the house across the way, an, an old lady opposite climbing upstairs. Let her climb upstairs if she wanted to. Let her stop. Then let her as Clarissa had often seen her, gain her bedroom, part, part her curtains, and disappear again into the background. Somehow, one respected that, the old woman looking out of the window, quite unconscious that she was being watched. There was something solemn in it, but love and religion would destroy that, whatever it was, the privacy of the soul. The odious Kilman would destroy it, yet it was a sight that made her want to cry. Love destroyed, too. Take Peter Walsh now. Um, so this moment, and this again relates to Clarissa's feelings about privacy. She sees this woman who isn't aware she's being watched, and she says that that should be respected, this kind of the, the private moment that she has, and that's the kind of thing that Miss Kilman wants to take away. She doesn't want anybody to have their own private moments. She wants to be in charge of it all. Uh, whereas Clarissa is willing to just sit back and observe it uh, and respect it. Um, and she knows that things like love and religion uh, will break that sense of harmony. Uh, look at the next page, 2227. Uh, why creeds and prayers and Macintoshes? That's the kind of coat that Miss Gilman wears, a Macintosh. Uh, when, thought Clarissa, that's the miracle. That's the mystery. That old lady, she meant, whom she could see going from, che from chest of drawers to dressing table, she could still see her. And the supreme mystery, which Kilman might say she had solved, or Peter might say he had solved, but Carissa didn't believe either of them had the ghost of an idea of solving, was simply this. Here was one room, there another. Did religion solve that? Or love? So that's the, again, that privacy, that separateness, that aloneness of people. Uh, religion is a way to try to solve that. Love is a way to try to solve that. But Luisa says, ultimately, neither of them solve it. It, it just has to be accepted. And then we get uh, Miss Kilman's reflections on all of this, the bottom of 2227. Clarissa Dalway had insulted her. Uh, she had, as a matter of fact, very nearly burst into tears when Clarissa Dalloway laughed at her. Uh, so she's, for, remember, for, for Clarissa, that was a moment of relief, of sympathy, of understanding. But for Miss Kilman, it was something that made her embarrassed and, and felt feel insulted. Uh, but of course, Miss Kilman is always feeling insulted and inadequate. You know, she says, never on the next page, never would she come first with anyone. You know, poor pitiful me. Um, 
and she feels very jealous that somebody else is eating this cake that she would like to have. And, you know, she says food is her only pleasure. She kind of is very intent on that, uh, but not in a uh, in an open, generous way, but in this kind of very greedy, possessive way. And she doesn't want Elizabeth to leave her. He says Miss Kilman could not let her go, this youth that was so beautiful, this girl whom she genuinely loved. Her large, large hand opened and shut on the table. Uh, she, she, she's very possessive. She doesn't want Elizabeth to leave her company. And she says if she could grasp her, if she could clasp her, if she could make her hers absolutely and forever and then die, that was all she wanted. Again, this kind of fierce possessiveness. Uh, if you were completely in my control, that would be fine. Uh, but again, that's that's not. Uh, uh, it says that she loves her, but really she just wants to uh, control her. Um, and and interestingly, the very last thing that Kilman says is, is when Elizabeth does leave is, "Don't quite forget me." She's just terrified of being alone and forgotten. Uh, and Elizabeth, again, is, you know, as we'll see, is kind of unaware of all this. And Elizabeth, uh, starting on the bottom of 2230, uh, goes on this, uh, goes outside and goes into an omnibus, a, a, a double-decker bus with the, it's open to the air on the top. Um, and she thinks London was so dreary compared with being alone in the country with her father and the dogs. Now, we've heard Clarissa's thought on this is that she loves the city better than the country. Uh, Richard prefers the country as well, but uh, uh, Clarissa likes the city, and Elizabeth, her daughter, does too. Um, And it said she had no preferences. Of course, she would not push her way. She inclined to be passive. So here we get another uh, kind of contrasting uh, uh, interior life. Uh, Elizabeth is very young. She seems very passive. She just kind of kind of go with the flow. She's not going to push herself. Um, she, you know, she says she was delighted to be free. The fresh air was so delicious, and she thinks about what she's what she's going to be. Uh, certainly, Miss Kilman has pointed out to her that all kinds of professions are open to women. She thinks she might be a doctor or a farmer. Um, uh, she would, you know, she would like to have some kind of profession, but then she says on twenty two thirty two. But she was, of course, rather lazy. So she's, you know, yeah, that would be nice, but uh, I don't really want to work for that. So again, she's just kind of floating along. She doesn't have a lot of ambition. Uh, she just kind of accepts things as they are, and she's not particularly reflective the way that. Uh, the the main characters in the novel are the way that Clarissa or Peter or Septimus are. Uh, she again, uh, part of that I think is her immaturity. She hasn't. Uh, Peter uh, talks about this about how being older gives you an ability to reflect on your emotions instead of just having them. Well, Elizabeth seems to be in the in the state where she is just kind of having her feelings, but not really reflecting on them or thinking on them very deeply. And all of these little glimpses that Wolf gives us of different characters in the novel, uh, you know, kind of create, by contrast, each of them becomes sharper. Um, we, we can see the the, the, the the parallels and the differences among the different characters, and it makes them all seem somehow more vivid.
And at this point, on uh, page 2233, uh, the novel returns to Septimus. He's there, he's at home. And it says at the bottom of the page, Every power poured its treasure on his head, and his hand lay there on the back of the sofa, as he had seen his hand lie when he was bathing, floating on the top of the waves, while far away on shore he heard dogs barking and barking far away. Fear no more, says the heart in the body, fear no more. He was not afraid. At every moment, nature signified by some laughing hint, like that gold spot which went round the wall, there, 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 her determination to show, by brandishing her plumes, shaking her tresses, flinging her mantle this way and that, beautifully, always beautifully, and standing close up to breathe through her hollowed hands Shakespeare's words, her meaning. So now we've seen uh, Septimus in quite, a, in quite a state of distress before. Now he seems to be having uh, th- these, this moment of, of almost ecstasy. Uh, and, and notice that repetition of fear no more. That's the lines that... Um, Clarissa thought of from Shakespeare, fear no more the heat of the sun. And in fact, Septimus mentions Shakespeare right there. So this is a little connection between them. Uh, they're finding, he says he was happy then. Uh, he's finding this, this moment of happiness. And uh, Lucretia is thinking about him and uh, the things that he writes on page uh, 2234. His writings about the war, about Shakespeare, about great discoveries, how there is no death. Um, and he's thinking about Evans, uh, and he says some things were very beautiful, others sheer nonsense. Uh, so he has, he's written these things, all these reflections, and again, some of them are beautiful, some of them seem just weird or crazy, uh, but uh, they give, again, a portrait of the uh, very artistic kind of mind that Septimus has. He has a very uh, inquisitive, intellectual mind. And notice at the bottom of uh, 2234, uh, uh, Septimus is thinking, he began very cautiously to open his eyes to see whether a gramophone was really there. But real things, real things were too exciting. He must be cautious. He would not go mad. So he's, he's worried that he's going having hallucinations. He wants to kind of make sure of it, kind of slowly opening his eyes. And he looks around and says, all, all were still, all were real. Uh, he's worried, is, is he just thinking that? But no, there she was, there's his wife, perfectly natural. So this is uh, giving us an indication that this is a real moment of clarity and sanity for Septimus. He has been plagued by these hallucinations, by these thoughts that he can't control, by this depression. But here he seems to be uh, almost literally waking up, opening his eyes and seeing the world as it really is around him and not being tormented by these inner demons of his. And uh, Lucretia realizes it, the middle of 2235, says, as he thinks, for the first time, for days, he was speaking as he used to do. Um, and says, never had she felt so happy, never in her life. 
uh, again, one of these moments of happiness in the in the story. And she's been making this hat for a, a neighbor, and uh, he's helping her out now and uh, putting the colors together. She says he had a wonderful eye and was often right, sometimes absurd, of course, but sometimes wonderfully right. Notice that's just what she said about his writings. I mean, sometimes they're crazy, but sometimes it's just right. And that's how he is. I mean, sometimes he's off and sometimes he's just right. And this seems to be one of his just right moments, his just right uh, periods. And then he he gets tired in the, the, the middle of 2236. He was very tired. He was very happy. He would sleep. He shut his eyes, but directly he saw nothing. The sounds of the game became fainter and stranger and sounded like the cries of people seeking and not finding and passing further and further away. They had lost him. He started up in terror. What did he see? The plate of bananas on the sideboard? Nobody was there. Rija had taken the child to its mother. It was bedtime. That was it. To be alone forever. That was the doom pronounced in Milan when he came into the room and saw them cutting uh, buckram shapes with their scissors to be alone forever. Now, of course, that was where he first met Lucretia and would eventually ask her to marry him, suggesting here that he did that out of fear of being alone forever. And he's waking up. He, she was there when he went to sleep. He wakes up and she's gone. And that is, it creates this fear of of isolation, of being alone. Uh, but she comes back in, into the room, chattering on the next page. And uh, we get into her head. Says, they were perfectly happy now, she said, suddenly putting the hat down. For she could say anything to him now. So they get this real, and again, they've been so estranged, and yet here's a moment where they seem to be genuinely connecting. But then he remembers what uh, Bradshaw had said: the people who are most we are most fond of are not are good for us when we are ill. And must, must, why must? What power had Bradshaw over him? What right has Bradshaw to say must to me? He demanded. It is because you talked of killing yourself, said Regia. Mercifully, she could now say anything to Septimus. So he was in their power. Holmes and Bradshaw were on him. The brute with the red nostrils was snuffing into every secret place. Must, it could say. But where were his papers, the things he had written? And he, he doesn't want them to get that. He doesn't want them to have his inner thoughts. Again, this is very much like Clarissa wanting to protect her privacy. Uh, and in fact, he tells his wife to burn them. But she, of course, she doesn't want to. She says some of them were so, so beautiful. Um, and then Dr. Holmes is coming to, to take him away to the asylum. Uh, and Notice it says that she's going to, she doesn't want anything to separate them. She's going down apparently to tell Dr. Holmes not to take uh, Septimus away. Um, says, no, I will not allow you to see my husband, she said. This is the bottom of 2238. But Septimus knows that Holmes is coming for him. And Holmes would get him. But no, not Holmes, not Bradshaw. Getting up rather unsteadily. Hopping, indeed, from foot to foot, he considered Mrs. Filmer's nice, clean bread knife with bread card on the handle. Ah, uh, but he mustn't spoil that. Now he's thinking of killing himself. He doesn't want to spoil her knife. The gas fire? 
But it was too late now. He doesn't have time for that. Holmes was coming. Razors he might have got, but Rija, who always uh, did that sort of thing, had packed them. There remained only the window, the large Bloomberry lodging house window, the tiresome, the troublesome, the rather melodramatic business of opening the window and throwing himself out. Uh, it was their, it was their idea of tragedy, not his or Rija's, for she was with him. Holmes and Bradshaw liked that sort of thing. He sat on the sill, but he would wait till the very last moment. He did not want to die. Life was good, the sun hot. Only human beings, what did they want? Coming down the staircase opposite an old, an old, uh, down the staircase opposite, an old man stopped and stared at him. Now, notice this is like the moment where uh, uh, Clarissa saw the old woman across the street who didn't see her, and now this old man who does see him. And Holmes was at the door. I'll give it you, he cried, and flung himself vigorously, violently down onto Miss Fillmore's area railings. The coward, cried Holmes, bursting the door open. So we get this moment of suicide, and it's to it's so that he won't have to go into this this treatment this being isolated from everyone uh this fear of being alone and that's that's what Bradshaw has told him this is you know you won't see anyone you'll be alone and Lucretia doesn't want that either she doesn't want them to be separated uh, but he sees no other way out and it's very poignant that again he waits to the last minute he doesn't want to die life was good the sun hot and, of course, that brings back that, that refrain, fear no more the heat of the sun. Uh, but he, he kills himself to escape the, the, the kind of the, the treatment uh, which he would feel as a punishment that the doctors would inflict on him. Uh, now, Dr. Holmes comes in, and we get this kind of impressionistic few paragraphs of, of the, the aftermath of it. Uh, Holmes, uh, Dr. Holmes wants Lucretia to, to be brave and drink something. Uh, the clock was striking. One, two, three, four, five, six. Uh, she's falling asleep. He's given, Dr. Holmes has given her uh, a sedative. Um, and in fact, that's the last thing he says, let her sleep. Uh, he wants to just kind of put put the put everything to sleep uh but septimus had woken up uh he, and again i think it's significant that he doesn't commit suicide in a moment of hallucination or a moment of depression uh it's at the the moment in the book where he is the most lucid uh and the most clear-headed and it seems to him the only way to avoid what's being done to him uh, the the treatment that he is that he's in for, um, and of course it's it's especially poignant reading this, knowing that uh, Virginia Woolf, Woolf herself uh, several times attempted and finally did commit suicide herself, um, and you you get the feeling that she has a uh, a real understanding of this this kind of moment for someone, and notice that. Septimus doesn't think of this as a tragedy. He says, that's the way that Bradshaw and Holmes think of this, as a tragedy. Remember that one of the 
things that he wrote, the writings that his wife wants to keep, is that there was no such thing as death. There was no death. Um, and, of course, this is from the almost from the moment that he's been introduced, um, uh, Lucretia mentioned that he, he had threatened to kill himself. So this is something that has been uh, uh, foreshadowed and coming from almost the beginning of the book, of his, his suicide, his... Uh, he's kind of he's a broken man. The the shell shock, uh, and now the, the the treatment that seems even worse than the shell shock to him. Uh, well, we'll uh, we'll leave that there for now. For next time, we'll we'll finish up Mrs. Dalloway, and we'll return again to Peter and his thoughts and his uh, reflections on Clarissa and their relationship. And the book ends, not surprisingly, with the party that uh, Clarissa is throwing. Uh, that's uh, that too has been foreshadowed from the beginning. She started the book getting flowers for the party, and you will see at the at the end of the book that we get a a connection, uh, a, a more explicit connection. There have been several kind of hints and echoes of connection between uh, Clarissa and Septimus. Uh, Clarissa uh, learns about Septimus's suicide and reflects on it. I want you to think about what her reflections are and what they say about the connection between these two characters. Also, you'll notice that the, the book doesn't end there with the kind of epiphany that Clarissa has, but with uh, thoughts of other characters about her, about uh, who she is. And think about how the, the, the very final moments of the book and what they say about uh, so many of the themes that have been going on. Uh, All right, well, I thank you for your attention, and we will discuss the end of Mrs. Dalloway next time.